Coming up today, the case for infecting healthy people with coronavirus, a big week for SpaceX, and we explain how weird your summer holidays are going to be. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Reynolds. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hi. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Twitter fact-checked US President Donald Trump for the first time. The social network placed a warning below two of Trump's tweets telling people to get the facts about mail-in ballots after Trump erroneously claimed that postal ballots were linked to voter fraud. Trump has since said that he will sign an executive order to stop social networks from censoring conservative voices. This was also the week when the UK announced the NHS Test and Trace scheme would start up this Thursday, with contact tracers telling people who have been in contact with a person who tests positive for coronavirus to isolate for 14 days. And it was also the week when we found out that the UK has the highest rate of excess death over the coronavirus pandemic. At least that's out of all the countries for which comparable data is available. So this is according to analysis from the Financial Times, which found that up until May 15th, the UK saw 59,500 excess deaths, which is a per capita rate higher than Italy, Belgium, Spain or the United States. And finally, 61 Conservative MPs and counting are calling for top government adviser Dominic Cummings' resignation this week after he said he had acted reasonably and legally after driving 260 miles from his home to Durham during lockdown. It's really not been a good week for the British response to coronavirus. We probably shouldn't dwell on that for too long. Uh, (laughs) Cheer me up with a fact, Matt Reynolds. So I found out that when the first motor vehicles started filling American cities, people were naturally quite worried that they'd freak out all the horses in the streets. In fact, um, spooked horses uh, killed 200 people in New York City in 1900 alone. But that's not my fact. My fact is, to fix this problem of spooked horses, in 1899, Uriah Smith patented the Horsey Horseless, which is a car with a wooden horse head stuck on the front. And Uriah uh, Smith reasoned, I'm quoting from the patent here, the live horse would be thinking of another horse, and before he could discover his error and see that he had been fooled, the strange carriage would have passed, and it would then be too late to grow frantic. So the horse's thought process would be, there's another horse, this is fine, wait a minute, that's not another horse. Oh wait, it's too far away, I'm fine. Yeah, exactly. Frantically looks behind it, being like, what's going on? <laughs> and um, an added bonus, the horse head du- doubled up as a kind of um, fuel storage device. We actually don't know if any were made, but we do know people were really concerned about this spooking horses problem at the time. But not concerned enough to buy a car with a horse's head on the front? Seemingly not, no. Vicky, what did you learn this week? I think we've all got animal-related facts this week. Fantastic. Um, well, so mine's a bit of a, a question for you. Um, what is a baby rabbit called? It's a kitten, right? Exactly. Which, you know, Sorry. I found absolutely charming. A baby rabbit, is, it's not called a bunny or a baby rabbit. It's called a kitten or a kit. Uh, lots of people call it a kit, but that's short for kitten. 
Where did bunny come from then? I don't know. I think it's just sort of a diminutive term for for a rabbit. It doesn't necessarily mean a baby one. Um, I'm, I'm very sad that I forgot to ask Amit for a magpie update that I can bring onto the podcast. Um, I'm not going to do it now, retrospectively, uh, but we'll find out about the magpies if we get them on the podcast next week, just so we've got even more animal facts. Natasha, you've got another animal factoid for us. Yeah, I tried to find another bird fact, but I couldn't verify it adequately, so I swapped it in for a different animal fact. So uh, what I found out this week is after a meal, the human metabolic rate rises by 25 to 50%. But that is nothing compared to a python, which rises by a whopping 4,400% for days, which is the highest increase among animals. And this is why it can um, sort of shed its skin and grow in such a fast fashion. And I'm doing hand gestures, even though this is a podcast once more. So They yeah. were appreciated. <laughs> uh, I learnt uh, this week, well, I, I thought I'd learnt something and then I turned out it wasn't true. There was a picture of a pelican cooling itself down by apparently apparently pushing its spine out of its mouth. It went viral, everyone was disgusted by it. Go look it up, it really is horrible. But it turns out it's not actually true. But it is still gross. What's actually happening in the picture is the pelican is yawning. And to yawn, a pelican flips the bill pouch, like the inside of its mouth bits, inside out. And you end up with this weird sort of ridged spine-looking thing protruding out of the pelican's face. So it looks like a spine, but it's actually its pouch flipped inside out. Go look it up. It's really, really horrible. There we go. Good animal facts. And we'll find out more about Amit's magpies next week, I hope. Our first story this week is about coronavirus, as it has been so many times. But we're taking a different tack and looking at the question, should we infect healthy people with coronavirus? Vicky, you've been looking into this in quite some depth. Yeah, so it's not actually as crazy as it might sound. Um, The idea is whether we should deliberately infect healthy people with coronavirus causing COVID-19 in order to test a vaccine. Um, So this is a question that's been asked by researchers, health organisations and ethicists as we continue to search for a vaccine or treatment to help bring and keep the coronavirus pandemic under control. The WHO, the World Health Organisation, actually came up with some sort of ethical criteria as a framework for, for what might be considered acceptable in this scenario. So it's it's under discussion. Um, in March, a man called Josh Morrison started a group with some friends um, and some colleagues called One Day Sooner, which lets people sign up to say that they would be willing to take part in a trial that purposefully infects them with coronavirus in order to test a vaccine. This is called a human challenge trial. So we've spoken on the podcast before about vaccines and we already know there are a few vaccines in different stages of clinical trials. So I know there's been some uh, tests in primates, so we're getting you know some sense. Um, why not follow the traditional process of then you know taking it into a you know, population level trial? What, why might we want to consider actually infecting healthy people what's different about this situation so the main advantage of a human challenge trial is speed normally to test a vaccine as you allude to matt you'd do what are called phase one phase two and phase three trials so phase one tests the vaccine in a small group of people to make sure it's safe phase two looks for signs that it's effective such as antibodies in the blood and then if they both show good results you move on to phase three which is done with a much larger group of people usually thousands and tests if it actually stops them getting the disease so in phase three half the people are given the vaccine half are given a placebo and they all just go about their daily lives in 
back in society. And the researchers track how many people in each group get the virus, you know, what their symptoms are, that kind of thing. And the participants are never deliberately exposed to the virus. You just kind of let nature run its course and then see after a while, does it seem like the people in the vaccine group are not getting the disease as much as the people in the placebo group. But obviously that can take a long time. Whereas a human challenge trial, on the other hand, gives some people the vaccine, some people the placebo, but then deliberately exposes them to the virus. So you know exactly when they've been exposed. You don't have to wait for them to accidentally come into contact. So it's much quicker and you also need fewer people. So there's been a lot of scientists that have talked about a vaccine and are trying to speed through the process anyway. Will this human trial be faster than that? And if so, how much faster? So it's not totally clear cut. First of all, it's not a straight comparison. Most researchers don't think that a human challenge trial could actually replace a phase three trial straight up. So it's not one or the other. It would be more like using both together because you still need a large amount of people to test the vaccine and get enough data on safety and efficacy before you give it to sort of the global population. And we absolutely can't compromise on safety. No one would suggest that. But if you do a challenge trial first, so maybe sort of after phase one and phase two kind of thing, you can perhaps figure out which vaccine candidates are most promising. Because remember, we've got more than 100 that are currently being developed and we can't really invest time and money in developing every single one of those through to phase three. So if we use human challenge trials to sort of see which are the most promising candidates and maybe weed out the ones that actually aren't proving to be very effective, we could perhaps fast track that process a a bit and end up with the best vaccine perhaps more speedily as well. There's the core tension here, which is we could end up deliberately infecting someone with coronavirus as part of these trials who goes on to become very, very ill or or perhaps even dies. So do we usually use human challenge trials in this way? So we do sometimes use human challenge trials for vaccines and they have been used to test vaccines for diseases including malaria, typhoid and influenza among others. There is also a history of unethical use, however, and you're right, you know, they are incredibly ethically fraught. And that's particularly the case for COVID-19, because we know that COVID-19 can be fatal, even for some young, healthy people. Right. There is still that risk of death and we don't yet have a specific treatment. So even though we've used human challenge trials before for diseases that are quite nasty, we have a treatment for those. So if someone felt really ill or got really sick in the trial, you'd be able to make them better. That's not the case currently for COVID-19. We don't have a specific treatment that we know can make people better. And so with Josh Morrison, this person you spoke to that had set up this pressure group to advocate for human challenge trials, he's a young, uh, healthy individual. So he's a, a relatively low risk but obviously we can't really run a trial just on young healthy people because that might tell us a vaccine works in them but doesn't tell us much about the vulnerable groups who might need to be um, infected so do we actually have an idea of what the overall risk from people that might be exposed to the the virus might be and thus you know what risk you're really taking if you join a challenge trial Yeah, so the people who would be joining these challenge trials would just be young, healthy people. So people like Josh, who wants to take part in one, he's in his 30s, um, you know, is healthy um, and thinks, therefore, that the risk to him would actually be quite low. That's the reason why you wouldn't be able to completely 
replaced phase three is you would then have to test the vaccine once you've done your human challenge trial, if we do them, um, in a broader population to see, well, actually, you know, does it work in older people? Is it safe for them? Those are the people who are most affected by this disease, right? But so in the trial, you would just have young, healthy people. And it's difficult to put a number on the risk because there's so much that we're still learning about this virus. But one study in The Lancet puts the risk of death for healthy 18 to 30 year olds at around 0.03%, which you know is quite low. We've seen that your risk increases very much more if you're in an older age group. So some bioethicists say this is an acceptable risk to run, right? It's small. And one I spoke to compared it to the risk of donating a kidney as a live kidney donor. We as a society generally consider that to be acceptable. If someone wants to donate a kidney, that's an acceptable risk for them to run. And they say that, you know, given a vaccine could save thousands of lives, a faster vaccine could save thousands of lives. I mean, remember that more than 300,000 people have already died from COVID globally. They think that, you know, that equation kind of works out. It's worth the risk. But others say that putting a trial participant's life at risk, even if that risk is relatively small, just crosses an ethical line. They say that our current research ethics don't allow for it. And they worry that the urgency of the pandemic might push people to sort of loosen their ethical standards or make decisions that they might not if we weren't in this situation right now, which could perhaps set a precedent um, and might also undermine public trust in research and particularly vaccine research when you know, at a time when that is really crucial. Of course, it's not just about the risk of death as well. There's lots of other severe symptoms that people can get from COVID. And it seems like we're still learning about more of them. So, you know, even if someone doesn't doesn't die from this, from a trial, which, you know, it could happen that even if we ran a human challenge trial, the risk was low and no one did. There could be other disabling effects or severe symptoms. We don't know much about the long-term effects of this illness because it hasn't been around very long. So we've got young people lining up to say, yes, I'll volunteer to do it. Um, Basically a green light saying we need this to happen. But I mean, from an ethical standpoint, I mean, how how do you actually, you know, gauge whether that the risk is, is worth it? Because obviously there's no guarantee these people might not die as a result of the trial. There's no guarantee that there's not going to be problems later on, you know, long lasting effects that we don't know about yet because it simply isn't out there. So how how is there a way, is there an equation that, that scientists can use to determine whether, you know, do we do we accept you as a trial candidate versus someone else? How many people should we restrict this to? Is there anything out there that they can use as a guide? So there's basically no one size fits all framework to say, is this ethical or not? Um, there are various ethics frameworks out there, but the problem is that every disease is different and every pandemic is different. So it's very difficult to kind of come up with a one size fits all approach and to draw like a real line in the sand. Um, and it depends you know, it is a bit subjective as well. I guess, you know, you might say, well, actually putting any research participants life at risk is not acceptable. Um, but most people have a more kind of flexible boundaries. And that's why various research groups have put forward criteria that they think should be met for a COVID human challenge trial to happen. Um, And they have like loads of different aspects from sort of informed consent to minimizing the risk to maximizing the benefit, all these things that play against each other. I mean, the utilitarian approach, which is sort of similar to, um, I guess, what One Day Sooner is, is putting forward is that, you know, well, these people are willing to risk it. And if a few people die or one person dies to save thousands, that's really tragic, but it's worth it because, you know, it's for the greater good. 
But the problem is we don't really allow researchers to do just anything to save lives, you know, even if the benefit is great. That's not how research ethics works. And one of the problems as well is we just don't know for sure that a challenge trial would make a vaccine faster or by how much. And that's partly because it takes a long time to set one up. So you need to choose which virus you're going to use, you need to manufacture it, you need to do do dosing studies to work out how much to use in the trial. That's quite a tricky thing in itself. You need to get all the regulatory approvals for every step because these are obviously very highly regulated uh, things. You need to screen the participants and decide who's the best people to test it on. You need to prepare safe facilities for it to happen in because you don't want anyone outside of the trial to, to be at risk of getting infected. And this all takes months. So by the time we actually manage to set up a human challenge trial, it may well be that we already have a promising vaccine candidate. We may already be in phase three trials. There are some vaccines that are well on the way to that at the moment. And the amount of time that a human challenge trial could save may be reduced and perhaps it it wouldn't actually be worthwhile anyway. So that kind of has to be factored into your risk benefit analysis, I suppose. So we've heard the pros and the cons, the risks and the benefits, um, the speed at which vaccine development is going at suggests that maybe we won't need these human challenge trials, but we've also got public health officials and politicians saying things like no option is off the table. So what should we be doing to ensure we're in the best possible position to treat this virus? So what a lot of people suggest is that because it takes time to prepare these human challenge trials, whether you agree with them or not, we should prepare them now so that then we can decide later whether to actually use them or not. Um, But, you know, they're ready to go if we want. It kind of keeps the option open. We don't have to start from scratch and take months to get ready to run one if we realise in the future, actually, we should go ahead with that. And in that time, things could change quite dramatically. You know, we might get a treatment for COVID-19, which would make it much less risky to test a vaccine. Or maybe we wouldn't actually need to do it anymore because we might already have good evidence for a vaccine. Or maybe it'll be more critical to do one. So one of the concerns as well about phase regular phase three trials is that you need virus circulating in the community for them to work. Because if you have your test subjects and you've given them the vaccine or the placebo and then you send them out back into the community, but there's no virus circulating and so none of them get sick, you can't actually tell if your vaccine is working or not. And that's particularly the case with social distancing. You know, if everyone's actually behaving really well and not seeing people following government advice to not come into contact with people, they may just not get the virus anyway. And so you're in this kind of awkward situation where actually if you're if you're really keeping on top of the virus, it may be impossible to test a vaccine, which could be another argument for human challenge trials. So I think the, the key here is maybe to lay the groundwork and then decide later whether it's worth it or not. The only thing you have to be really careful of there is not to sort of fall into this, I guess, sunk cost fallacy type thinking where you've already put the investment into laying the groundwork for the trial and therefore it might sort of, you know, bias you towards doing it. Um, And it's sort of comes down to who decides this as well. So for most trials, different countries and regions have different approaches to, um, you know, who ethically signs off on them. Uh, But there's an argument here that maybe this should be an independent body, perhaps an an international or at least national level that can really come together and say, is this ethical or not? What do you guys think? I mean, do you think we should do it? Would, Would you volunteer for one? 
I find it very weird to have spent the last several months avoiding all other human beings, shutting my life down to effectively a half mile radius around my flat, and then to all of a sudden willingly infect myself with this thing that at times has caused me quite high levels of anxiety, but at other times I just thought I'll probably just get a cold. It would feel quite a strange leap to make, even if I was likely to get fairly mild symptoms. So I, I'm not sure I would. Yeah, it's weird to know, isn't it? Because I don't think most people in the UK know whether they've even had it or not, because you might have been asymptomatic. And so if you have had it and you didn't have any symptoms, does that mean you're the perfect test trial candidate? Does that mean that you get a test and someone will say, you've had it already, so you're perfect for this? Or does it mean that you'd be completely ruled out? I mean, it's, it is weird um, to, to kind of be in that situation where you think, obviously, everyone wants to be a hero and saying, you know, if I could help thousands of people and stop this from happening, of course, I'd put myself forward. But there's so many questions around it you kind of go well would I be even eligible for it if I might have had it and just not even noticed or does that make me the perfect candidate I have so many questions so many <laughs> yeah also Vicky when you were mentioning the kind of uh, donating a kidney as a live person as a kind of thing that most people ethically would do I was like oh what would I donate a kidney I don't have an operation and have a kidney removed I mean I personally feel that having like James said having a kind of uh, exposure to a virus that's probably going to be mild. I, I feel better about that. But then it's funny because like you were saying, you have to weigh this up against, well, actually, you'd still have to do wider trials. And how good is it knowing that it protects a 30 year old, you know, healthy uh, young man versus the actual uh, vulnerable group, which is much older people. And you start to think, well, how much am I actually helping? So, yeah, like I said, there's two questions. There's the, the personal risk and the ethical question. And actually, well, how much does this really help us get forward? And I think that that kind of diminishes my feeling that this is helpful. Maybe we're just all very bad people. No, I think. Would you do it, Vicky? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think Natasha, to your point, I imagine if you have already had COVID, you probably wouldn't be able to take part in the trial because you'd already have some antibodies, and it would kind of confuse the data and stuff. Um, and I'm sure they'd test for that and screen candidates. You know, obviously they want sort of the perfect candidates to do that. And, and to your point, Matt, with the, the kidney donation comparison, I, I agree. I think a lot of people would not donate a, a kidney, especially to a stranger. Um, but I think as a society, most people would say it's ethical to do so. So that's sort of the difference. Although it's not, you know, it's not a perfect comparison because if you're donating a kidney, you kind of know exactly what the result of that is going to be. You know, you know, you know, of course, there's a chance that it might not work, that it might be rejected or something like that. But you know very much, you know, what the outcome is going to be. It's going to help say, potentially save this one person's life. Whereas taking part in a, in a test for vaccine, you, you don't really know, you know, it could be that it's a vaccine that turns out to be completely hopeless and, you know, didn't do anything. Um, and you don't know how, you know, how many lives it could save or whatever, or whether it just won't do, do anything as a whole. So you're more kind of working as a collective. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting one. I mean, there are other benefits as well. It's not just about finding a vaccine. It, could, it would allow researchers to do a lot, to take a lot more data, to do a lot more research on coronavirus and COVID as well. So they'd get more information about it. So there are other research benefits. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think personally, I feel like there's still a lot we don't know about this disease. And so I'm not sure that I would feel informed enough to make that choice. Um, you know, I can definitely sympathize and understand with the people who want to do this. And I think, you know, I can understand that impulse as a younger person you know, we've all been kind of worrying about older relatives and friends, 
you know, if you could do something to sort of help alleviate that. And we've all been in this dreadful, you know, situation of, you know, quarantining, isolating. And it does sometimes feel like the only way out is through a vaccine. So if you can do something proactive. I mean, Josh Morrison, who started the One Day Sooner thing, um, you know, when I spoke to him, he for him, it was very much, you know, having a sense of agency over a situation that really makes you feel ho- hopeless and like you can't do anything. Like this is something that as an individual, he felt he could do to actually help. It's a small sample size, um, but it's not uh, a great um, reflection of the success of a potential challenge trial that we all said no. Um, would you say yes? Podcast at Wired co.uk are you up for taking part in a human challenge trial um are you signed up to trials of vaccines or treatments that your country is running already i know in the uk there's lots of opportunities to sign up to programs if you fit within certain health criteria let us know what you're doing to help out if anything at all podcast at wired co.uk a classic podcast handbrake turn now from coronavirus to space Matt, a few people tried to escape our coronavirus hell this week, and it didn't go exactly according to plan. It didn't. So at quarter to ten last night, which was Wednesday night, people in the UK were supposed to see a rare sight, which would have been a rocket launching two astronauts to the International Space Station. As it happened, the launch from Cape Canaveral was actually cancelled due to poor weather. So we'll have to wait until Saturday to watch the launch. And I think there's actually only a 40% chance the weather will be good then. So we might be waiting a tiny bit longer. But despite this delay, this is still a huge deal. So this launch was supposed to be SpaceX's first ever human spaceflight and the biggest milestone yet for Elon Musk's company, which has actually only been around for 18 years. So for people who haven't been following the space news, you know, we've all got a lot to distract us at the moment. What, what exactly was this launch? Yeah, actually, I think for a lot of people, it felt like they hadn't heard about it. And then it was like, oh, wow, God, a space launch is happening tonight. Um, so a little bit of background. So what was, what was happening or what is still going to happen is SpaceX is about to launch two NASA astronauts, Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley, to the International Space Station. So this is the final test of the SpaceX Crew Dragon spacecraft. And if it's, if it's success, successful, the Crew Dragon will then be used to shuttle crews to and from the International Space Station. So this Crew Dragon spacecraft is now uh, scheduled to launch atop a Falcon 9 rocket on 30th of May and it should dock with the ISS a day later. I think it's about 19 hours of flight. So Hurley and Benkin will then work alongside the existing uh, crew on the space station for between 30 and 119 days and then they'll return in the Crew Dragon and only when that spacecraft has been returned and it's recovered and have checked out how everything went will find out if NASA certifies uh, SpaceX and that spacecraft for later crewed missions. So this is a huge deal because it's the first time that a private company has launched astronauts into space and it'll also be the first crewed launch from uh, US soil since 2011 which is when NASA finally canned the space shuttle program. I think we can all agree that Crew Dragon is a brilliant name an excellent name <laughs> but, um, but so, so what what exactly um happened here because i mean this this is obviously the, the first uh, private company um mission as you mentioned before what why is that the case and, and what's been going on because this is obviously a big feat for spacex uh, to, to achieve this and to get in how did they do that 
Yeah, I mean, I completely agree, by the way. Crew Dragon, pretty sick name. I, you know, say what you like about Elon Musk, but I have to say, while I was watching the, um, you know, the launch, seeing the astronauts in the, in the capsule and everything, I was thinking, this is pretty cool. The spacesuits are pretty shiny. They've got yeah. kind of touch controls. And, um, it, you know, it certainly was quite an exciting uh, vision of space flight. But, um, but right, yeah, to kind of contextualise this. So, so you have to kind of really go back to, you know, way back in the early 2000s. And NASA had this really, really difficult decision it was facing. So the space shuttle programme had seen two fatal uh, accidents, uh, Columbia and Challenger. And it was seen as ageing and costly and kind of dangerous. So remember, space shuttle was this idea that you'd you know launch a launch a, a, a you know a kind of a spacecraft on a rocket and then it would return uh, to Earth later on, but NASA was like, well, this hasn't really gone as planned. So with this program facing retirement, NASA had this decision, right? So they were like, well, do we go down the route of developing our own replacement? Do we find some other way to send them up to the ISS, or do we want to try something new and maybe let someone else have a go? What we kind of see today is that evidently it went down that latter road. So in 2006, NASA started a program to contract private companies to build spacecraft and rockets for them. At first, this was just for cargo flights, and I think uh, SpaceX has flew something like 100 cargo missions already. Uh, but in 2010, this was expanded to human space flight as well. Now, in the meantime, you know, since 2011, NASA's not had a way of getting its own astronauts up to the, uh, you know, or it's not had a way of doing it by itself of getting them to the ISS. So NASA astronauts had to hitch a ride to the ISS on Russian Soyuz capsules, where a seat there cost more than $90 million per astronaut. Now, part of the whole idea about outsourcing uh, this space flight to a private company is to reduce that cost. So the cost per astronaut on SpaceX flights is supposed to be around $20 million per astronaut per flight. Now, this is all because SpaceX's thing is all about reusable rockets, right? So we've got the Falcon 9, its first stage will return to Earth uh, and it'll, you know, it'll dock onto a ship and the idea is we can reuse that. We think we could probably reuse it over 10 flights. It massively brings this cost down. And NASA thinks that over the, you know, the length of the, you know, of bringing this round of bringing people to the ISS, essentially, is going to save the agency between 20 and 30 billion dollars. And to put that into perspective, I think its annual budget in 2019 was around 21 billion dollars. So it basically save an entire year of um, of funding just by switching to this, uh, or basically outsourcing uh, space flight to the ISS. Saving money is good. On the face of it, this would appear to be NASA reigning in its ambitions. It's outsourcing one of its most iconic programs, the space shuttle program. There was a lot of sadness a decade or two ago when that started to be wound down. But this is actually about NASA following a different path, right? Getting to the ISS is now like hopping on a very expensive bus. And NASA has more ambitious plans to go further and and uh, launch more complicated missions. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that that's a good way of putting putting it. Because I mean, I, I think the ISS has been around since the early 90s. And we've been doing this kind of human space fight for quite a while, although we haven't been doing it, you know, as much as we might like. And I think that although it might seem disappointing that NASA is outsourcing this to a private company, actually, you might say, well, actually, there's more 
certain parts of this become more routine, it makes sense to outsource it. Of course, that is a kind of governmental philosophy, isn't it, right? That you might outsource it in the same way that in the UK we're saying, well, why not let a private company run our test and trace regime or let them head it up? NASA's saying, well, we kind of know how to do it. Let someone else do it and do it cheaper. And so the idea, like you said, is that by handing over this kind of this regular ferrying of astronauts to the ISS in low Earth orbit, you can offload that onto commercial companies. And in doing so, it will enable the agency to focus on much grander missions in deep space, as well as taking humans to the moon and Mars. And obviously, the idea is that you save this money uh, and you can put that towards other missions and, and you can actually save the kind of time and human effort that goes into building this and you know, put that to these other missions. And the problem is, is that these deep space missions, NASA's had some kind of false starts there as well. It's not super clear how well its deep space ambitions are going. And also under the Trump administration, uh, although Trump has kind of said that he wants to put NASA's funding up, we're not entirely certain how certain um, the agency's funding is for the future. So there's some people that are worried that this is more about outsourcing and reducing its scope as opposed to uh, redirecting its finances. But at least from the agency's point of view, they're saying, look, we want to focus on the grander stuff. This is to be routine. We don't want to waste our time doing that. Let us focus on this big picture stuff and be more about uh, exploration, more about research, and more about this exciting stuff. And the cost and complexity of getting humans on a regular basis back to the moon and later Mars is hugely, hugely substantial. Um, but also a part of the SpaceX program is putting this out to the market. You need competition and it isn't just SpaceX that's competing for these NASA contracts. Yeah, exactly. So basically when we had this this um, you know crude and out crude uh, mission program uh, it was SpaceX and Boeing that eventually got the contracts to do this for NASA. And I think together, this is almost about $5 billion in terms of grants to develop the rockets and develop the spacecraft to do this. So Boeing's own uh, crewed spacecraft is called St Starliner, which I actually think is a pretty, pretty cool name as well. So I have to say from Space Shuttle to Crew Dragon and Starliner, I kind of like that, you know, gist in terms of naming. The problem with Boeing, there's been a lot of competition between Boeing and SpaceX, is that Boeing's, you know, it's not gone so well. So it had a botched test flight to the ISS in December 2019. That's going to be need to be rerun later this year. And this is a test that SpaceX actually accomplished months earlier than that anyway. So Boeing probably isn't uh, going to be available for humans until spring 2021 at the earliest. But what this does appear, and I think this is ever so slightly uh, you know, up in the air because we have to say until Crew Dragon comes back to Earth, you know, in a month or maybe three months time, we can't. It's not signed off, right? It's, it's funny because these are two astronauts that are going to space, but this is still a test, right? It's called Demo Two, the mission. So this is still officially a test mission. This is not a you know proper mission, if you like. Um, until that's actually verified and it's signed off and that contract goes to SpaceX to do this for the permanent uh, or for the foreseeable future, um, we don't quite know whether commercial programs like this are going to be the future, although it seems very, very likely. And uh, what it probably will open the door to is more and more um, play from kind of commercial space agencies, especially SpaceX. So if NASA's saying, well, going to the ISS is routine in five years or in 10 years, if we're thinking about a moon base or something like that, perhaps that will be something supplying a moon base. Perhaps that is something that'll be, um, you know, inherently led to you know, commercial companies. So it's really, really interesting, not from a technological point of view, but also from a setting the dynamic of 
you know, the future in space is definitely moved into one that's n- not so much government agencies, but a very strong private um, interest in it now. So hopefully by the time people listen to this, the Crew Dragon capsule will have safely taken off and reached the ISS. As Matt said, they're going to try again on Saturday. In the meantime, you can read a fascinating in-depth look at this mission, where it's come from and where it's planning to go to on wired.co.uk. We'll include a link in the show notes. So while NASA prepares to jet off for space, we probably got a more urgent question on our minds. When can we jet off on our summer holidays, Natasha? So yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question, James. And I wanted to actually throw that right back at you. So I, I wanted to, to start off the, this by asking a question. Do any of you believe that you might still be able to go on summer holidays abroad or in the UK? I mean, I technically still have a trip to Cuba planned for mid-July. I can't remember when exactly. I think maybe July the 14th or something. It's not been cancelled yet. However, my, I mean, as I understand, if I come back, I'll have to quarantine for two weeks. And it seems very doubtful that the flight will actually be going ahead. So I'm going to say I'm, I'm technically meant to be, but I find, it, I find it very, very unlikely I'll be going on that trip. Risky. Vicky? I've downgraded my ambitions and I'm now holding out for a camping trip in the UK in a tent with just me and my partner. (laughs) That's great. How about you, James? Yeah, sort of similar. Um, We were planning on flying a a very long way uh, in the summer and probably in uh, Christmas as well. Um, But we're we're downgrading our ambitions too. If we manage to get to Scotland, which is a place I like particularly, that will be a success. But I'd, I'd even take um, uh, yeah, similar to Vicky, a field somewhere with a tent and a nice view would be just fine. Yeah, I think um, Matt's ambitions are perhaps a little bit too grandiose for this year, um, judging by by what's been going on. So I've completely written off uh, 2020, by the way. I think that it just won't happen. Uh, nothing will happen. And I'll still be in the same room uh, come December. That's my, my theory. I'm a bit cynical. But anyway, uh, we, I, I suppose this has been slightly informed by the fact that we've, we've peered into the future this week. Um, the future is also known as China because it's further ahead in the recovery process post lockdown. And we're able to look uh, at what they're doing over there and what tourists are doing and where people are going to have a bit of an idea as to what is awaiting us in, in a couple months time if things start going back to normal. So over there, planes are running businesses are open and museums and places of interest are accepting visitors. But what we found was still very, very interesting. During this time of year, many Chinese tourists would usually plan trips to Thailand to go shopping and sightseeing. It's a very popular location. Instead, they're, they're scrapping that. So kind of like um, Matt's Cuba trip, they've decided it might be a bit too risky and most of them are staying closer to home. So official data from the Chinese government shows only a smattering of new infections over the past month. But even so, 30% of travellers chose destinations near home and they confined their travel to within their own provinces, which is even closer to home uh, for, for a lot of people. Becoming infected with coronavirus is one concern, but not knowing what restrictions and measures are in place in other provinces is another. So though, though China's central government in Beijing has set the overall direction to address the coronavirus uh, pandemic, many of the decisions on how to handle it on a local level is left to local governments. This means that in some areas of the country, contract, uh, contact tracing apps and temperature checks are the norm. And in other places, the rules have become more relaxed because uh, there's so few cases of coronavirus coming up that people have just sort of stopped doing that. They're more lackadaisical. So for domestic tourists, this is incredibly confusing. Obviously, China's a huge country. There's loads of different provinces to visit. And if you're going from one place to another, you might find yourself inadvertently breaking the rules. Um, so so that's, that's a very confusing situation for those trying to take a holiday at the moment. 
But you say people are still taking a holiday. So where are they going? Like, how do you sort of holiday at home, as it were, I suppose? Yeah, so there's there's still loads of places to go uh, within China and sightseeing locations that have been popular with tourists have basically been booked out in advance. So if you want to go to locations that are super iconic, you know, beautiful places and you want to avoid the crowds, there are systems that have been put in place so that you can book a slot and, and go and visit in advance. But even the crowds that are congregating in these locations have made people really nervous because, again, they're in the situation same similar to ours where they've come out of lockdown, they might have you know been keeping social distancing they might not have seen a lot of people in one same place for a long time and it sort of triggers that anxiety tour companies are banning people from certain locations uh, from joining over health concerns and those that do go to popular tourist destinations have to be prepared to basically book those in advance and know that they might not be able to go and see them or, or have a very restricted time limit while they're there so over five days, there were 115 million tourist trips domestically, which amounted to 47.6 billion yuan in revenue, which is about 5.4 billion pounds, according to China's Ministry of Culture and Tourism. So, that, but, but this was a 60% drop, to give you an idea. So people are completely being put off by the situation. 60% drop in tourist numbers compared to the same time last year, even though the government has added a day to this year's May holiday to five consecutive days. So what the government's trying to do is say, look, you know, we're going to add some holidays we encourage you to go um, to, to you know spend some time outside of your house you know please do go out um, it, it's, it's trying to stimulate the tourism economy in China but it's it's not it's not as quick or as as effective as it once was popular places like Chongming Island which has a very Shanghai feel um, it's kind of very close to Shanghai but it isn't Shanghai um, the, the massive crowds huge traffic jams trying to get to the island um crowds went viral on social media um it, this was this happened early on in april uh, this is very very bad because uh, basically people in anhui province could visit huangshan without booking ahead and it's got this beautiful place with pine trees mountain peaks really popular and you had these huge pictures of crowds of people just crammed in there and authorities had to issue four notices within five hours they basically said get out of here we don't want you here it's not safe just just go uh, so so all of those images have obviously been circulating massively around social media making people even more nervous going actually if i do manage to get to a beautiful place that i would love to visit um i might i might find myself confronted with literally everyone in the world having had the same idea um so so very very concerned about traffic jams about where to stay and also about the crowds when you get there um one person that we spoke to tried to holiday in shang which is famous for its beautiful and historic terracotta warriors um she had family that was there and she thought I could stay with them rather than book a hotel. She arrived on train and, and this was a really weird experience. So those that do decide to, to go on holiday finding themselves in the midst of a very weird kind of um, set of norms. So she thought, you know, that because of her province being different that there were going to be more social restrictions. Um, but in fact, you know, the mandatory empty seat that you would have on the train next to you just didn't apply because the train was quite empty. Um, the carriage that she was in wasn't full. Some travellers have told us about um, the fact that they would arrive on their tour destination and there would be kind of communal plates that you could eat from there was just not the, the same standards were not applying it was very confusing for them to to know where exactly they stood and what 
was safe and not safe to do. Um, in, in March, most places in China require travellers to show green health codes, which is an immunity passport kind of system that, that's been touted over here in public places, restaurants, when taking metros or buses. But with no new cases, police have sort of let that go. So in certain areas, you might uh, find yourself going, OK, I don't need this anymore. And in other areas where you might decide to go on holiday, you would get into massive trouble if you haven't been using it and doing the, the proper sort of using the proper local health code apps. So um, this is this is uh, an interesting scenario for Hubei province, which is the source of the uh, coronavirus pandemic and the outbreak to begin with. This location attracted 7 million tourists. So 7 million people were like, it's okay, we can holiday at the out where, the where the outbreak first happened. But this is obviously a beautiful place. It's a huge area. It has wonderful scenic spots. It's still dropped by 80% compared to last year. So again, loads of people just decided not, not to go. Uh, the live stream effect uh, will hopefully rub off on, on some people. So there's been a lot of promotion saying we're going to um, hire really popular you know, bloggers and YouTubers to almost promote uh, certain areas to get people to go there. So the government's been doing a lot of, of that and trying to kind of push people forward. They've been giving coupons. They've been encouraging people to travel. Um, they're hoping that that's going to reanimate some of the the tourism there but some some of um the the live streamers that were hired um are like lee jakey who can sell supposedly fifteen thousand lipsticks in five minutes so there's a there's a fact for you so i think a, a lot of things that I, certainly what i'm thinking about in the uk and i think what a lot of people are thinking is well a price is going to be really really cheap google travel firms want us to kind of get out there or is everyone else having the same um idea as me and as soon as this quarantine back in the uk lifts all the prices are going to go up and it's going to be really difficult um is there are there any signs from china about what businesses are doing to incentivize people uh, to travel that might hint the kind of approach that we might see in the rest of the world yeah so flights are unbelievably cheap cheaper than ever before um Tourists are being given vouchers to spend um, more in local businesses. So there's a huge, obviously, government back investment saying we're going to try and stimulate the economy, we're going to try and help local businesses because they're just not you know, making ends meet at the moment. Um, one of China's biggest travel companies called Trip, is actually pushing tourism virtually. So uh, they, they'd been, again, just turning to the online world and saying, okay, if I can show you what places look like and that it's safe and that you can travel here, and if I'm traveling there myself and you can see me there, maybe you're going to be encouraged to go yourself. So they had, uh, this, this company had its CEO personally visiting hotels and promoting them through live streams. So in one live stream to drum up business, he had like a long beard stuck to his chin and Tang Dynasty robes and was sort of, he had the whole gear trying to encourage people to go over. In another one, he tries to rap um, and, and it worked, you know, so he his live streams got uh, watches to book 520,000 hotel rooms. So I suppose some of the biggest hotel chains in the UK might have the same idea. Post, get their CEO to go to each of their chains and try to promote, promote it as much as possible online so that people can see that it's okay. I think, again, there's been a huge incentive for, for businesses to show it's safe to stay here. We've put these specific measures in place so that you won't, um, you know, you won't be at risk at all of, 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 of getting coronavirus virus again. Um, the, the government is obviously um, backing backing all this effort and again trying to encourage people through through the online medium of, of live streaming. So um, yes, it's an interesting move certainly because it doesn't seem to be working so far, judging by the, the figures, but it could make a difference in future. 
And China isn't alone in the level of state intervention that it's putting in place to try and encourage people to go out and revive the economy and spend money and go on holidays and eat at restaurants and do all the things that they used to do in the before times. I think in Japan, um, you can get up the equivalent of £152 a day from the from the government to go on holiday, to spend in shops and restaurants and on other activities. So I think Japan's seen a 99% decline in international tourism. So it's trying to get Japanese people to go on staycations. And there's a, a sense that we're looking into the future, right? That in a couple of months time, everyone in the UK and a lot of European countries aren't gonna be able to leave or it will be very expensive and complicated to do so. So what can we learn from what's happening in the future about what our new normal will look like in a couple of months time perhaps? A lot as it turns out. So any place that relies on a, a large amount of tourism to survive, whether it's Japan or anywhere else, will be in trouble. So the UK has become, as of Thursday, the place with the highest death toll in the world per capita during the coronavirus pandemic. As Vicky mentioned before, we've got 37,470 deaths. Not many people would argue that this government is handling the situation well either. So even if even if our recovery speeds up in time for the summer break, it's really unlikely that many people will want to travel abroad for holidays. And of course, the people coming in are going to be affected as well. There's not going to be a huge incentive to go to the place where people most die, as far as I'm aware anyway. And the, the, once again, we can look to China for what's going to look like. So as, as we are obviously top of the league um, in a very gruesome uh, way for, for the deaths of a coronavirus, uh, we can look to Hubei province, which is again where where this coronavirus pandemic first originated um, to, to see the way people are treated. So um, Hubei residents are reportedly facing discrimination when they travel because people think they're diseased. When they leave their province, they, they have to test negative for the virus and they have to get a green health code, but people are treating them differently and they're afraid of them because they are coming from a place where the pandemic is perceived to have not have originated and have become so propagated that it was a big problem and so they've become almost emblematic of that whether that same situation is going to affect us because of the, the sheer scale of deaths that have been um, present in the UK is, is yet to be seen uh, we, our government has obviously been touting for some time the idea of potential travel bubbles um, which would allow us to go to specific locations around the world that were handling the coronavirus pandemic in similar ways so for example if you've got people flying from Manchester airport to Berlin um, they could do that if both of those locations were dealing with the virus in a similar way, It'd technically be safe. Um, this obviously hasn't been announced and it's a huge logistical nightmare. I mean, it's very difficult to know exactly where in the world is dealing with a pandemic in exactly the same way as the UK, um, especially given our figures. So it's, it's a logistical nightmare. If people are afraid to travel, um, to, to abroad, which looks like it's going to be the case. Um, this leaves all of the beautiful locations in the UK. And as you both were saying, James and Vicky, that's the kind of thing that other people are going to be thinking about this summer holiday. They're going to say, okay, can I go camping? Can I go to B&Bs? Can I go to beautiful locations, which there are many of them in the UK? Um, can, can I go over there? And the same effect that we're seeing in China could very easily be replicated over here, where you've got massive traffic jams going to places like the Lake District, Peak District, any kind of seaside, um, any location near big cities like London, Manchester, Edinburgh. And, and, and as of today, there's nothing really in place to stop that from happening. 
So if, if we look at the government's plan at present, they've said we want hotels and BNBs to reopen, we want restaurants to reopen, we want things to go back to normal as quickly as possible. But the logistics around that is still very much up in the air, whether people are going to be obeying, um, you know, lockdown social distancing rules whilst also confined in small B&Bs where you might have a couple of rooms is still yet to be seen. So you can just see from the scale of what's going on in China, what is going to happen over here in the coming months. And there are huge lessons to be learned here um, that the government could take on. And that's that's really um, the, the task, the impossible task of reopening tourism. Yeah, absolutely. And as we've seen from China, there are two things happening. There are some spots that are getting overwhelmed, but overall, the picture is of far less people going on holiday and visiting places. So if you're smart, you should be able to go on holiday and find somewhere that's nice and quiet and feels safe. Give us some inspiration. Podcast at wired.co.uk. What are your summer holiday plans? Are you being ambitious or are you keeping it simple? Do let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we've talked about on the show this week. We'll finish as we always do with a selection of your emails from the podcast inbox. Vicky, you've got one from Brian. Yeah, so Brian writes in to say he's commenting on our 1st of May podcast, so a few episodes ago, and he says, as a man in my 70s living in the north of Scotland, I am very happy to exchange my privacy for anything that might help protect me. So I think this is in relation to uh, tracking apps and that sort of thing and whether people will be willing to give up some of their personal information to help those work. Brian says, for my understanding, privacy doesn't seem to be so important when you're lying face down in an ICU fighting for your life. I can understand how it can be different for younger people living in cities, but even you, should you happen to end up as above, may see things in a different light. Yeah, it's definitely a good point, Brian, and one that really brings home the reality of COVID-19, especially for people at risk. Um, I suppose one of the main considerations here is, you know, whether you are, whether giving up that privacy will actually bring any benefit. It's similar to, I guess, the, the what we were talking about earlier on this episode about um you know human challenge trials and weighing up risks and benefits but yeah when you're when you're talking about um potential deaths and a deadly disease um perhaps privacy is not at the top of your priorities and matt reynolds you had an email from mario about coronavirus symptoms i did so mario writes i've just been listening to your frankly brutal and terrifying update on the physiological impact of COVID-19. And Mario's on day 61 of ongoing mild symptoms, which seem to be morphing over time. So I'm sorry to hear that, Mario. But he has a burning question. Are people who have ongoing symptoms, whether severe or mild, uh, actually infected with the virus, or is it damaged after the virus itself is gone? So I did a little bit of uh, research on this, Mario. And so I found a couple of studies. Um, and what we know is there was a study of four medical professions uh, professional, sorry, uh, in Wuhan, which found that traces of the virus could persist in the body up to two weeks after symptoms had vanished. And there's also a study in the Lancet Medical Journal, which showed that in one patient, uh, virus lingered in the respiratory tract for 37 days. And that's well above the 24 days that we know those with critical disease status uh, tend to experience. What we don't know, of course, is whether this still means that people uh, are infectious, because they might have some of the virus, but not really be shedding it enough to infect other people um, and we don't obviously know necessarily whether 
you know, what that virus is doing, whether that's actually causing damage or whether this is kind of lingering effects, as you said. Um, but yeah, so the evidence seems to suggest that the virus can hang around. We're not entirely certain what the implications of that are. But thank you for writing in, Mario, and I hope you feel better very soon. Final email from Andy, who writes in about the podcast quiz that we did a couple of weeks back. He says he loved the quiz and would love another one or even a themed one, but maybe on a monthly basis. Well, the good news is, Andy, that we're working on a second quiz already and we'll be announcing details of that on the podcast soon. He goes on to write about schools reopening in the UK as lockdown lifts, which is meant to happen on Monday for certain age group. He says that him and his wife are still unsure about sending their four-year-old back to school. He says his school has been communicating its plans really well, excuse me, but that the plan would mean classes of eight or potentially um, eight children, potentially with different teachers, without friends that they know. Um, A lot of kids might not return until September. He asks if this solution is really better for the child's mental health and staying at home, in Andy's case, with his mum who works part-time and can guarantee some one-on-one learning. He also wonders how hard it will be for younger children to be handed over to teachers they don't know in classes with kids they don't know, especially after spending three months cooped up with their family. Finally, he asks what children who miss out on school over this period can easily catch up on. This is a really, really complicated question and we've seen it borne out in the different circumstances that children find themselves in. So some children will have access to that one-on-one learning at home. Some children will have a house with a garden and lots of space and siblings and parents who have time to look after them. Other children won't have access to that. And it's about trying to level out that very, very, very uneven social pattern. It's a really, really difficult question. And anecdotally, we've been talking about this quite a bit amongst the wired team, many of whom have children or have relatives who are sending children back to school. And it's really, really 50-50. Some people are sending kids back to nursery or school where they're expecting an awful lot of children to attend. And other people are maybe sending their kids back to a school which will have barely any children. We're seeing council by council, a lot of schools not willing to open because they don't believe that they can safely practice social distancing so it's that horrible thing that an awful lot of the uk coronavirus guidance is coming down to at the moment which is use your instinct do what you think is right um, which as we've seen isn't particularly useful advice for many of us at all podcast at wired.co.uk we really do love getting your emails so please do get in touch that's it for this week thanks so much for listening as always and we'll catch you again next time bye-bye Bye. Bye.